0: I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, we're going to finish out this chapter this morning as we look at a series of conflicts between Jesus and religious leaders in Israel. As we walk through this, we're going to see that Jesus truly is Lord of all and that today there are many who resist Jesus's authority, but one day every knee will bow to Jesus as Lord. One day every knee will bow to him. So as you find your spot in your Bible there, Matthew 22, we'll begin reading in verse 15 and read down uh, right now through verse 22. So Matthew chapter 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you don't care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. They brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Well, one of the lesser known wars in American history is the War of 1812. Now, historians have given us the gift of being able to remember the date of this war by naming it after the year in which it began. But it lasted a couple of years and ended in December of 1814 when the British officially surrendered to the United States. But information being what it was in 1814, war didn't spread immediately, and so it was a couple of weeks later, actually, that one of the major battles of this war was fought on January 8, 1815, down in New Orleans. Uh, General Packenham, a British General uh, marched on New Orleans and and hoped to overtake the city. He came with a much superior force in strength, number, and strategy, and he thought at some level he, he could he could strike a decisive blow for Britain in the war, not knowing the war is already over. But as he approached New Orleans, there was uh, a roguish pirate by the name of Jean Lafitte, and Lafitte knew that that Packenham was coming, and so he actually warned the American troops that the British were coming. Kind of the uh, pi- pirate version of Paul Revere's ride, I guess. And so as the British approached, the Americans got themselves ready under the leadership of a man who's well-known now, General Andrew Jackson. And so when the British arrived, the Americans were entrenched, very dug in. So you've got 7,500 British soldiers against 4,500 Americans. And the battle lasted only about 30 minutes, but in that 30 minutes, some 2,000 British soldiers died. Only eight Americans were killed and 13 wounded. So on this day, you have someone of much superior number, much superior strength, and and seemingly every advantage coming in and just, the, the Americans just wiped the field with them because they were ready for them. And here in Matthew 22, we have a similar scene. Superior numbers, seemingly superior strategy, preparation, and the religious leaders in Israel come and attack Jesus, and Jesus mops the field with them. So we've got three different groups that will show up in this chapter, and they all form together, the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin are sort of the first century Illuminati. In other words, they're kind of the ruling council behind everything that happens in Israel. There's 71 members of this group. They're made up of three, three groups within the Sanhedrin. you got the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Scribes. Now, the Scribes are a group that kind of blend into the Pharisees and Sadducees, so they're not all distinct, but Scribes are technical experts, uh, lawyers, essentially, so you got Pharisees and Sadducees, theological groups, and scribes, and they come and they attack Jesus together. But each time they attack, Jesus is prepared and he parries them, and then he responds with a devastating counter-attack. But the first attack that we see here is they attack Jesus, the Lord of politics. Now, our day is not the first day in which politics have been a big deal. They come to Jesus with this sort of political hot potato, a question no one would really want to touch. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said that he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So his mission is not political, it's redemptive. He came to preach the gospel and declare that God is redeeming sinners through his grace. But as he traveled, imagine with me that he's traveling through a very complex political environment. You see, Israel has its own politics. And then around Israel, you have Israel situated within the Roman Empire, So you've just got layers and layers, and even within Israel, as we'll see, kind of different political situations and leanings within the nation of Israel, not unlike our own. And so Jesus navigates this very complex environment. So imagine with me a spiritual leader who's preaching the gospel clearly in a place where politics are just a trap no matter which way you look. Well, as Jesus preaches, as is often the case, they are people who resent his ministry. And so they come to him seeking to trap him. So in verse 15, we have the first of three back-to-back-to-back conflicts between Jesus and religious leaders, and verse 15 tells us it's a trap. The Pharisees plotted how to entangle him in his words. So after their plot is formed, they hatch their plan. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, we've got another group introduced here. The Herodians are people who back the Herods. They're essentially a political lobbying group in the first century. So you've kind of got all the political forces arrayed here, and they're going to confront Jesus. Well, as deceivers often do, they start with flattery. They call him teacher. Teacher, we know that you are true, and you teach the way of God truthfully. Well, then it's ironic because then they tell Jesus, we know you're not easily influenced. And then they try to butter him up and influence him. But the words of Solomon are true. The kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So the Pharisees leaning close to kiss Jesus, but also hiding the dagger that they plan to skewer him on. Verse 17, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, in this theoretical question, they've laid a particularly ingenious trap. So this is near uh, the end of Jesus' life, sometime around AD 30 to 33, somewhere in there. Well, if you track back a few decades to AD 6, you've got the Roman Empire fully coming in and investing themselves in Palestine. And when they came in, they implemented a tax called the poll tax. Now, the poll tax is the first century equivalent of the 1770s tea tax. In other words, it's not real popular in Israel. And so like the early patriots that that dumped the tea overboard in Boston Harbor, there was was an early Jewish leader here, a man by the name of Judas. Now, this is not Jesus' disciple Judas, it's a different Judas. And he leads a revolt in AD 6, protesting this particular tax. Now, that revolt is put down quickly, and it's unsuccessful. But his revolt laid laid the way for a later revolt, 60 years later in AD 66, there's really the last Jewish revolt, because then in 870 uh, Jerusalem is wiped out, destroyed. And it's this poll tax that led to a lot of what happened. Well, it's not a very popular tax. Now, Judas, the rebel leader, is from a region known as Galilee. Now, Galilee, as we know, is where Jesus has spent a lot of his time. It's in the north. Well, where is Jesus now? He's in Jerusalem, all the way in the south, in Judea. Well, in Galilee and Judea, you have very different cultural and political contexts, So, this poll tax applies in Judea. It does not apply in Galilee. So, Judas is from Galilee. Where's Jesus from? He's coming from Galilee as well. So, Jesus is coming from a context where this tax doesn't particularly directly apply to him. So, theoretically, Jesus can come down and give an opinion without a lot of investment in the matter, maybe be fairly objective. Sort of like asking you about property taxes in Massachusetts. I mean, you have an opinion, but you're not invested in the system there. You don't have to pay the tax. So there's a little less hanging on it than someone who's actually invested. So Jesus can theoretically offer this answer, but but what's the trap? The trap is if he says, yeah, you need to pay the tax. Who's mad? All the Jews. Well, if he says, you don't need to pay the tax, then he's in trouble with the Roman authorities. And so really there's this knife edge that he's walking, and there's no good way to navigate it. Well, if the trap is a genius trap, Jesus' answer is better still, verse 18. But Jesus is aware of their malice and says, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? I love the way Jesus doesn't mess around at all in dealing with this kind of thing. I mean, he speaks directly. He doesn't take any time for any of their shenanigans. Then in verse 19, show me the coin, and they brought him a denarius. Jesus asked them a question. It's an easy question. Whose picture is on this coin. And they said, Caesar's. Well, like our coins often bear an inscription, so George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, kind of major leaders, uh, their coins would bear the emperor of whomever was in power at this time. So these first century denarius would would bear the image of the emperor and an inscription, Tiberius Caesar Augustus. So because Caesar issued the coin, it ostensibly belonged to Caesar, and it's right then that it be paid back to him. So he says to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God's. Well, why is this so important? Because one of the first acts in any Jewish rebellion is to start making their own money. Because money represents something. Money actually represents authority. If you pull out now, most of the time, I I almost never have cash on me at all. I think I do right now, actually. Uh, No, because my wallet's in my bag. But most of the time, I don't carry cash at this point, but if you do take out cash, it says on it, printed by the U.S. Treasury. It represents governmental authority. And so Jews, as a sign of casting off this authority, would print their own money. Well, what's dual citizenship? It's when you hold citizenship in more than one country. And so, ostensibly, if you had different... If you were from different places, or parents are different places, you could be a dual citizen of the United States and Australia, or Germany, or Switzerland, or something like this. Well, Scripture teaches that actually everyone who knows God by faith is a dual citizen. In other words, we have earthly responsibilities. In Romans thirteen, we're told to submit to governmental authorities. And yet Paul also says in Philippians three, verse twenty, our citizenship is in heaven. So we're, we're walking this line, and we see the apostles do this in Acts chapter 4 and 5, where they say, they're, they're confronted by Jewish leaders, and they say, we ought to obey God rather than men. So there's this earthly responsibility, and yet there's this heavenly citizenship. I saw a pastor say recently that in today's world, it's better for a pastor to get his theology wrong than to get his politics wrong. And that's mostly true in my experience. Now, it's not good to get your theology wrong, but people put up with that a lot sooner than they'll put up with getting your politics wrong. I mean, the prophets of our day aren't in the wilderness wearing camel's hair. They're on cable news networks 24-7. I mean, the average American spends 35 hours a week watching television. you got prophets speaking 30, 40 hours a week into your life, and then in 60 to 90 minutes trying to counteract some of what you Here, people spend more time digesting what people who don't know Jesus say, we ought to think, than they do actually digesting what Jesus said. Is it possible that by and large, God's people are more politically informed than they are theologically or scripturally informed? That ought not to be the case. We're to be people of the word, people shaped by the word, people formed in the word, people grounded in the word, or otherwise will be what, like James 1 says, we'll drift with every wind of doctrine, and we do. It's not that we can't or shouldn't have political opinions, but sometimes the gospel of political alignment completely overtakes the good news of God's gracious gift of Jesus. What is the face of our Christianity to the world? Don't let the controversies of today distract us from this truth. God loved the world and sent his son Jesus, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I mean, brothers and sisters, if we were to ask ourselves what is our face to the world around us, that is to be our face not the gospel of politics. Jesus ultimately is Lord of politics, and he moves us from politics to a theological question. As the Sadducees come and confront Jesus with a different question, and they attack the Lord of life in verses 23 to 33. If you'll follow along, we'll begin reading in verse 23. The same day the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said... If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So, to the the second and the third, and down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Well, a different group now approaches Jesus. The Pharisees have tried to trap Jesus politically. Now, the Sadducees try to trap him theologically. So we've said the Sadducees are one of the most influential groups in Israel, second really only to the Pharisees. Now, theologically, a significant difference between the Pharisees and Sadducees is that the Pharisees accept the whole Old Testament. So Genesis and Malachi, they'll accept it all. The Sadducees are a little bit different. They only accept the first five books, the Pentateuch, or what is sometimes called the Torah. And so uh, genesis exodus leviticus numbers deuteronomy that's what the sadducees hold to well these five books don't teach clearly anything about the afterlife and so they don't accept the doctrine of the resurrection because they don't accept the rest of the old testament so this sets the sage for their test they tell a rather convoluted story about a woman who outlives seven husbands i mean the first thing i think is first of all good for her i mean good night you know she must be remarkably resilient well Then in verse 28, the Sadducees spring their trap. In the resurrection, after having seven husbands, whose wife will she be? Well, they all had her. So the law, Jewish law, commands that when a a brother dies, the younger brother must marry that bride. So uh, the, the family name and the family line and the family inheritance would pass through the oldest son. So if the eldest son dies with a wife and no kids, that wife then marries his younger brother. And when they have a child, that child becomes the eldest son's child to carry on the family nine, the family inheritance, the family tradition. And so the way this happens is it's because it passes through the oldest son, it's very important that this man have a son. And so legally, when the second son has a child, that child becomes the first son's child. Well, this happens, you know, seven times, and this woman has no child. In fact, you see this uh, in Scripture. So Genesis chapter 38. This plays an important part in the line of Christ. You've got Judah, who has two sons. One son marries Tamar. This son dies. Tamar marries a second son. The second son will not perform his legal obligation to give her a son and provide a son for his older brother. So in the end, Tamar has relations with her father-in-law, and that passes into the line of Christ. It also plays a a significant uh, part in the book of Ruth. So Ruth and Boaz You have Boaz marrying Ruth and providing children for for this other family, for Naomi's family. What's the law of leverant marriage? And so this is something that that, that the Jews know well, and so they lay this trap for Jesus. But in doing this, they've laid a trap of their own making. So they lay this theological trap, and then Jesus responds with a theological double chokehold. So he responds in verse 29 You don't know the scriptures first thing. Secondly, you don't know the power of God. The Sadducees are experts in the Torah. Now, look, Jesus and all the other Jews study 39 books. They've only got to know five, and they don't even know them that well. They fail to observe what the Torah actually teaches. So first, Jesus hints at truth that later scripture will reveal. There's no marriage in heaven because there's a great marriage in heaven. Jesus, the bridegroom, will wed his bride, the church, and so there's no other marriage in heaven. Secondly, Jesus appeals to a story they know well, Exodus 3. The Lord meets Moses in a burning bush. Remember this story in the wilderness? And he speaks to him, and he identifies himself as, as the God of the patriarchs. I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Now, if you know anything about biblical history, by the time Moses is here abraham isaac and jacob are doing what they're dead they are doing nothing they're lying in the grave so when the lord speaks and says i am the god of abraham isaac and jacob how can he say that he is their god if they're dead the point is they are not dead but living god is not the god of the dead but of the living and so the crowd hears this and they're astonished and they cannot believe jesus has actually interpreted the torah better than the experts on the torah he's beat them at their own game It's not that the Sadducees haven't heard this scripture. They know it. It's that they have failed to understand it. You see, in this doctrine, it's so important because our faith rests on the resurrection, not just of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but ultimately on the resurrection of God's Son, Jesus Christ. This is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, then we are of all people most miserable because without the resurrection, we have no hope. The cross of Christ without the resurrection of Christ is a powerless cross. But with the resurrection, the cross of Christ becomes a cross that can deliver us from any any enemy, sin, death, any evil. And so in Christ, we have hope. The promises of God all rest on this truth. The resurrection is real, and God has declared it and guaranteed it through his son, Jesus himself. The Sadducees have the truth of Scripture, yet they fail to see it and submit themselves to it. Yet how often do we fall into the same trap hearing the word and not doing the word? If God were to show up today or Jesus were to show up today and we went to 1 John and we read, love not the world nor the things that are in the world, would Jesus say to us, well done? Or would he say, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? Or Jesus' own words, you cannot love God and money, would Jesus say, well done, your life is a faithful demonstration of the sacrifice of the gospel? Or would he say, you know not the Scripture nor the power of God? Or if we came to Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Would he confront our idolatry of work, school, hobby, family, TV show? Would he say, you know neither the Scripture nor the power of God? Or would he commend us for loving the bride of Christ as he loves his bride. You see, the error of the Sadducees is no different from the error that we often ourselves fall into. We move from a political and theological test now to a scriptural test. How is it that we relate to scripture or God's revelation? So if you follow along, we'll read verses 34 through 40. So we've gone Pharisees, Sadducees. Now the Pharisees will show up again in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it: you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Well, you can always count on a lawyer to ask the difficult question, can't you? And this guy shows up and he's got another tricky question. Mark's gospel tells us this man is also a scribe. Scribes, as we've said, are the technical experts in the law, and Jewish rabbis by this point had delineated some 613 laws that the scribes are experts in. So the scribe's question implies not just a desire to know which is the greatest of the commandments, but which one is so great that it would govern all other commandments. In other words, if you could keep this commandment, it would help you keep all of the rest. Well, this is a common debate about which is the greatest commandment. It takes place for centuries before Jesus ever shows up. So Jesus answers by quoting from Deuteronomy 6, the passage that uh, Jim Thompson read earlier. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, no doubt this is a common answer to this question. There's this vertical dimension to our relationship with God, and it it affects us so much that Jesus hits that first. But then Jesus connects dots that no one else ever had, and we never would had Jesus himself not done it first. Now, it's common for us, love God, love others. Love God with your whole heart, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus quotes from Leviticus 19.39, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two hang, depend all the law and the prophets. Rabbis often quoted the requirement to love God. They often quoted the requirement to love your neighbor, but no one had ever put these two commandments together. No one had ever realized that in these two commands, there is one will of God. In other words, from this vertical relationship flow our horizontal relationships. These two commandments faithfully summarize all that God desires of us, love God and love others. I mean, Jesus' answer is succinct, It means it's, it's kind of neat. But if we're honest, it's also deadly. Look again at verse 37. Love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. If we realize that that is God's expectation, each of those alls is like hammering a nail in the coffin of our souls. I mean, to keep the law All you have to do is never fail to love God completely. That's it. And then Jesus goes a step further. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jews interpreted this command pretty conveniently. They interpreted it as applying only to good Jews. If you're not an Israelite, you're not my problem. But we know that Jesus tells a different version of this command, doesn't he? the story of the Good Samaritan. He demonstrates that everyone, even the people that were tempted to despise the most, whether it's because of personal relationship, whether it's because of some ethnic or relational disposition, everyone is my neighbor, especially the person that I'm most tempted to despise. Love God, love others. It sounds great as a church slogan, it sounds great as a social media bio, but it is a terrible standard against which we will be judged. Everyone who fails is condemned. I mean, loving God is my life's mission. And yet, I think I can honestly say that in every single one of the 14,000 plus days of my life, there's never been one day when I did this successfully. And yet God says this is the command. So this beautiful summary of the law so brilliant becomes a terrible record of condemnation. Love God completely. Fail. Love others perfectly. Fail. Yet in all of the ways that we fail, Jesus succeeds. First John 4 verse 9 tells us, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. It's in Christ that we can do this, in and through Christ that we can fulfill these commands. Jesus came, God said, love God completely all the time, and Jesus never once failed in breaking this command. God said, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus never once failed to love his neighbor perfectly. So friends, it is true. You and I cannot fulfill these commands. But through Christ in us, we can live out these commands. And if we mix up the order of these commands, if we try to do it on our own, it's a terrible record of condemnation. But in Christ, we can know that when we fail, even when we fail, Jesus himself succeeds. And God cannot turn away the presence of his son. When his own son comes knocking, the father will answer. We come with a record of failure and Jesus comes and offers in our place a record of ultimate success. A record that we did not earn, that we cannot earn, that we do not deserve and he gives it to us. That's grace. That's not earned merit. That's not anything we can deserve. It's something that God gives us. It's Jesus in my place. When Jesus hangs on that cross, what's he bearing? He's bearing our failures. He's bearing our failure to love God, our failure to love our neighbor. He's bearing our sin, our condemnation. And we stand before God, and God says, welcome home, my son. He's welcoming us home for the sake of his son, Jesus Christ. We can know when we fail Jesus succeeds, and God has saved us so we might live through him. Well, after these three attacks, it's time for Jesus to turn on the offensive. He's got a counterattack. He is Lord of all. Verses 41 to 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Well, this time Jesus asks the question, what do you think about the Christ? And this is the central question confronting every person. What will you do with Jesus? Then he asks a follow up question Whose son is he? They respond with a right answer. It's not, it's not a wrong answer, but it's a right answer the son of David. Well, from the very first pages of Matthew, we've seen that Matthew is proving that Jesus is the son of David, the rightful king of Israel. The opening genealogy demonstrates that Jesus is David's greater son. In chapters 9, 12, 15, 20, and 21, Jesus is called the Son of David. So Jesus isn't taking issue with the correctness of the title so much as its inadequacy. In other words, they don't go far enough. Is Jesus David's son? Yeah, he is. But he's so much more. In Psalm 110, David writes, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So David, the king, speaks of someone greater, my Lord, someone who is his Lord, his master. So David recognizes that his son is greater than he is. Now, the way that uh, the Jewish culture worked is that historically, the Jews have claimed that for centuries, ever since the kings of old, Jewish power and culture have been in decline. And so it's impossible that someone now could be greater than David when the Jews were actually doing okay. And in any family, the father is the ultimate authority figure. So it's not possible that a son can be greater than his father. So it's both historically and relationally implausible that David would call a son Lord. Well, how can this be possible? Well, after trying over and over to trap Jesus, the Sadducees and Pharisees find themselves trapped. Verse 46, no one was able to answer him, nor did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. It's like, shut up, guys, we're done. But what about David? See, David was a shepherd of sheep. The son of David, he's our shepherd. David ruled a nation. The son of David is sovereign over all creation. David faced temptation and failed. The son of David faced temptation and succeeded for us all. David slew Goliath with a stone. The son of David crushed the head of the serpent, and no stone can hold him in. David died a weak old man. The son of David, he lives forever. And so do all who trust him. At the end of life, the most important question won't be, were you a good citizen? It won't be, were you a good father? It won't be, did you live a good life? The only question that really matters is Jesus, your Lord and your Savior. It won't even be, did you carry your Bible and go to church? Philippians 2 tells us that because Jesus humbled himself to die in the place of sinners, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming when every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord. But today, Jesus offers you the opportunity to do this by faith. Will you turn from your sin and trust him? Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.